it's uh, once again continuing the series aerobics. And uh, the stadium is cheering. And some of you may be asking, what's in that bag he just picked up? Some of you don't care. Um, but I'm going to reveal it to you, okay? And it, it will come as a surprise to some of you, okay, that I even have such a thing. These? Those are my running shoes, okay? And it's probably the least used item in all of my wardrobe. It's been some time since they've been appropriately applied. I put them on every now and then, and I mow the yard on my riding lawnmower. <laughs> but uh, I'm going to let you just kind of, you know, there, there are some things that are just priceless, you know. You put a baseball bat in the hands of uh, Barry Bonds, it's priceless, you know. Put a golf club in the hands of Tiger Woods, it's, it's pretty priceless, you know. You put those shoes on the feet of Scott Olson, and they're pretty much worthless. But anyway, anyway, um, the stadium's cheering, okay? Last week, I uh, laid a foundation for the message this week. And obviously, I've introduced to you my running shoes. And uh, I remember when I was introduced to aerobics, I was in college, and Dr. Cooper had just written this book called, and I can't remember what it is, but it's about aerobics and keeping your heart rate up for a certain period of time, and you'll be healthy, and you'll lose weight, and all those kind of things. Um, and, and I took him up on it, you know, and I started doing that for two or three days. And, uh, but anyway, Runner's World magazine says that we are human animals, and we are made to run, and we're made to move, okay? And uh, I, I, I had a friend who was a runner, and he was running, I think, in a 10K, and um, 10 kilometers. And, and he's running along there, and this older gentleman comes up beside him. He's kind of running there and starts chatting my friend up. And they just talk for a little while, and they run, and they talk and all things. And the guy says, the older guy goes, I, I need to move on, so I'll see you later. So he pulls on up ahead. Written across the back of this guy's shirt that he was wearing was, you have just been passed by a 72-year-old man. <laughs> but the writer of Hebrews, he describes a race that we run. And we run this race as a team. Okay. Now, most races that are run are run by individuals that are in competition with one another. And they're running to get a gold medal, silver medal, uh, bronze medal, whatever the medals are, whatever, okay? But this passage is describing a team that is running together in the same direction for the same purpose. The writer of Hebrews is speaking to an aging church that needs to be encouraged. And in Hebrews 11, the faith chapter, we've all heard of that. We've got all the big names, okay? The big guns. We're talking about Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Moses, Isaac, Joseph, all those guys. But when you go into the latter portion of the chapter, you get to the lesser known people, and then even further you get to those that we'll call the no names. They're just people who are lauded because they laid down their lives. 
Then there's this phrase in Hebrews 11 and 38 that says, the world was not worthy of them. Wow. Would you like to have that etched in the granite of your tombstone as your epitaph? The world was not worthy of them because of the way they lived their life. And then we come to Hebrews 12, 1 and 3, my text. And it reads, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Verse 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. I don't know if you've ever been involved with running much, but there's something special about running together, okay? Now, when we come to church, a church meeting, we're really running together, okay? We're living our lives running together in this race that we call life. And when we come to a church meeting and there's an altar call and somebody comes to the altar to give their heart to Jesus, isn't it awesome how the saints rejoice? We rejoice together that we have a new runner on the team. Do you ever think about it that? It's not just a saint that's going to be going to heaven. It's a new runner on our team. I remember when I was seven years old in Hutchinson, Kansas, First Assembly of God, Pastor Rex wrote, was our pastor. And Mom took me to Sunday school. And I was sitting around this big, long uh, press board table. I say long. It was more like shaped like a, 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 an artist's easel, you know. Kind of had that free-form shape. And the little kids' chairs were out here. And the Sunday school teacher came in that cut out place right there. And she had just finished her flannel board lesson. And she asked these six- and seven-year-olds around the table, how many of you would like to receive Jesus into your heart? And my little seven-year-old hands went up in the air. And she prayed a prayer with us and asked us if we wanted to be forgiven of our sins and if we wanted Jesus to come into our heart. And I most wholeheartedly did so. And after service, my Sunday school teacher, Miss Sue, I don't remember her last name, she went up to my mom and said, Mrs. Olson, I just want you to know that Scott received Jesus into his heart today. And I didn't know it, okay? But that morning, I didn't know a whole lot about myself. I didn't know a whole lot about sin. I didn't know a whole lot about Jesus, but I joined the team. I was running with the entire Jesus team. Many of the people were much older than I was. They're much better runners than I was, much faster than I was, but I was a member of the team. Now, that was an individual decision. I made that decision all by myself. And when we make the decision to start living the life, we don't do it by alone anymore. We do life together. Number one, we run together. 
The most important element about running this race of life is endurance. Staying with it. Toughing it out. Persistence. Stamina. Resolution. There was a time that I actually did run, you know. And it was in Vernon, Texas. And, and, and I really didn't start running. I started out by walking. An evangelist came to our community, and he asked me if I would get up and walk with him and, and pray in the morning. So I got up early in the morning, whether it was raining, whether it was dark, whether it was cold, whatever it was, we got up in the morning, we went up to the Vernon Lions track, and we walked the track for two miles. And we walked and we prayed and all those things. Well, the evangelist eventually had to leave, but I continued. And I continued by asking a friend of mine whose name was Dale Denny to walk with me. And he said, I won't walk with you. I'll run with you. He said he was a runner. And I said, well, okay, let's run together. Well, this guy was a real runner, okay? And he could do five miles without breaking a sweat. So he said our goal is three miles of running. And I said, well, I've only achieved two miles of walking. He said, nonetheless, so we take out, we're running, and we get to the second mile, we're finished. And I said, I think I'm finished because my side is hurting. I'm gasping. I'm bent over. I can't believe. He goes, no, no, one more quarter mile, one more quarter mile. And I looked up, and I said, get thee behind me, Satan. But I ran anyway, and I ran, and I made it with a quarter mile. We repeat the whole scenario, bent over. Side aching, gasping, sweating everywhere. And I start walking away. He said, no, no, let's do one more quarter mile is what Dale said. I said, Dale. He said, you can do it. You can do it. So I start taking off. And I was, it was not really pretty running. It was more staggering than it was anything. And I made it the next quarter of the mile. Repeat. Same thing. Side hurting, bend over, gasping, sweating. He goes, one more quarter mile. And I go, oh, no, you don't. I see what you're doing here, okay? He said, come on, just one more quarter mile. And I said, tomorrow. The point is, we were doing it together. And he was encouraging me. Isn't that the way this race of life is supposed to be? We're not trying to beat anybody. We're trying to endure to the end, and we're encouraging one another to make it. You see, those that have gone on before us, as the Scripture mentioned there in Hebrews 12, they've gone on before us, and they are an inspiration. But there's always jeers as well. Satan himself is called the accuser of the brethren. I'm doing it, everything I can do to do my best. I'm running with every ounce of strength that I've got, and Satan sits on the sidelines, and he's, he's telling me, I'm never going to make it. I can't keep up with those other runners that are running with me. I'm not doing it as well as anybody else. I'm too poor to be a good runner. I'm not smart enough. I'm not sharp enough. But this group that the writer's talking about are the cheerers, not the jeerers. These are our inspiration. These are our motivation. We've mentioned those who have been examples that have gone on before us, and they're important. 
But there are those that are running with us today in this race, and they encourage us. I remember going through a difficult time one time, and a man invited Dana and I to go up to the Williams Tower, the top floor, and have dinner with him. So we, we did so. We went up there, and he was a co-runner in this race of life. He wasn't there to beat us. There was no competition there. He just knew that we were struggling in this race of life. And all he wanted to do was put his arms around us and say, I love you, I'm with you, and you're going to make it. Do you have your people in your life that do that? We're in this race of life together. Think about the people in Scripture that were heroes. Moses, what a hero. But guess what? He didn't do it by himself. There was Aaron and Hur who lifted his hands during the battle, and they prevailed. There was his sister Miriam who danced on the other side of the Red Sea after the great victory. How about David? There was a Jonathan in his life. Scripture says that Jonathan loved David as he loved himself, and they were brothers-in-law. Peter, James, and John, they didn't do it all by themselves. They were fishing buddies, and I'll promise you they encouraged one another. In the New Testament, after the Gospels, we see a book of Acts and some letters that were written to the different young churches. Thirteen of those were written by the Apostle Paul. He puts his name on all 13. There are only five of those epistles that have only his name on them. But in 1 Corinthians, it has the name of Paul and Sosthenes. In 2 Corinthians, it has the name of Paul and Timothy. In Galatians, it has the name of Paul and all the other brothers with me. Philippians, the same thing. 2 Thessalonians, Paul and Silas. You might say, those who are mentioned in those New Testament letters, they're just flunkies. They're just hangers-on. My friends, that's not what Paul says. He says these letters are from all of us. He didn't do it all by himself. He had others there with him. And they were encouragers as well. Listen to the language in 1 Thessalonians 1, 1 through 6. Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace be to you. We always thank God for all of you, continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope and our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that He has chosen you because our gospel came to you, not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord for you welcome the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. 
Saints of God, this is a band of brothers who were walking together and obeying the commandments of the Lord. A band of brothers and saints, I look out here and I see a band of brothers and sisters and we're doing this life together, running this race shoulder to shoulder and we're not trying to beat one another, we're not trying to be more holy than one another, we're here to encourage each other to endure to the end. Number two. We run with our eyes on Jesus. We run with endurance the race that's set before us because he endured the cross for the joy lying before him. Jesus was the trailblazer in this race, the pioneer. He's the one who went before. And when he ran the race, he ran for the joy set before him. Well, what was the joy set before him? What was the joy set before Jesus? You. Me. Us. That's why he ran. That's why he did the race, just like you and I. That was why he was tempted at every point, just like you and I, because he was running the race and he was trailblazing, he was pioneering, he was setting the example. <laughs> you, me, us, that was the joy set before him. He looked down through the eons and he saw us. And we're the joy. We were his goal. Get this. He ran for us and now we run for him. We've got to fix our eyes on Jesus. And if we're going to fix our eyes on Jesus, that means that we've got to pay attention. Okay? We've got to pay attention. There was a young man who was walking by a lake. And he's walking by a lake, and he, he picks up the pace, and he's jogging a little bit, just running along. It's by it, down this, you know, the side of a highway, state highway, pretty busy. Passes this lake, and this big yellow dog jumps up out of the bushes and starts following him. He scares him at first. He thinks the dog's going to maul him. But he's a golden lab or whatever you call him, retriever. You know, and he's just going to lick him to death if he does anything. So he comes up beside him. This dog's just all over the place, woo, 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 chasing butterflies, you know, going everywhere, chasing cars that pass by. He sees car coming, and he starts to swerve out into the road, okay? And the man who's running there, he says, get back, get back, get back. He finally gets out of the road, and the man blares on his horn as he's passing by, gives him the finger, and the guy goes, he's not my dog. They run a little bit further, and yellow dog's running all over the place. A big semi's coming. He runs out in front of the semi. Semi swerves, misses him, and the guy's standing there, get out of the way, get out of the way. He's waving at the dog like the dog understands what a wave is. Get out of the way. Dog gets out of the way, the dog's missed, the dog's life spared. While that story is being related to me, the Lord taps on my heart. He says, Scott, the yellow dog, that's you. I was like, really? He says, yeah, you don't listen very well. 
Did you know the term listen and obedience are actually the same verb in Scripture? Same thing. Here's a quote by C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity. I want you to listen carefully. C.S. Lewis, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said that sort of thing, Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit on him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with the patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. And Timothy described the Jesus that I'm talking about. Here's the Jesus that I'm talking about. Colossians 1, 15 through 20. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything He might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through His blood shed on the cross. This is the Jesus that we've got to fix our eyes on. We can't fix up our eyes on some Jesus that we have made up in our mind because that's who we think He is. We can't serve a Jesus that we dress up in blue jeans and take to the mall with us and look around us. And when we refer to him, we talk about him as being the man upstairs. That's not the Jesus that I want to fix my eyes on. The Jesus that I want to fix my eyes on is the Jesus that hung the stars up above us in the space that we could dwell under them like a canvas tent. The Jesus that I want to fix my eyes on is the Jesus that holds the sands of the seashores in His hands as a balance. The Jesus that I want to fix my eyes on is the one who turned water into wine. He's the Jesus that I want to fix my eyes on that raised the dead. 
I want to fix my eyes on the Jesus that opened blind eyes. I want to fix my eyes on the Jesus that was able to lengthen withered arms. I want to fix my eyes on that Jesus who was able to make the lame walk. I want to fix my eyes on the Jesus who said, I'm coming again to get you, and I'm going to split the clouds, and I'm going to say, would you come away with me after the trumpet of the Lord shall sound? That's the Jesus that I want to fix my eyes on. I referred to Eric Little last week, spoke quite a bit about him, showed you a clip of Chariots of Fire. He's a Scotsman. And when he ran, by the way, his, his aunt said wanted him to quit running so badly because she thought it was going to distract him from his missionary call to China. And he looked at her and he said, God created me to be a missionary, but he also created me fast. And when I run, his glory is shown through. But when he ran in the Olympics and he won the gold medal in the 400, I think it was a 440-yard dash back then, or the 400 meters, whatever it was, and he won that gold medal, he was running in the colors of his kingdom. He was running in the colors of the United Kingdom, the country of England. And he represented them well. But it was just a superficial wearing of the colors because the true colors that he was wearing were the colors of an unshakable kingdom. An unshakable kingdom were the colors that he was running in. You know what it's like when you're in high school and you're playing football or basketball or soccer, baseball, whatever it is, you're wearing the colors of your team, you know? I got so sick of wearing red and white when I was in high school, but those were my colors, you know. And now my big team's a sooner, so I'm wearing red and white again. But Hebrews 12, 28 and 29 says, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Jesus, our God, this is no baby Jesus in a manger, meek and mild. This is the God who spoke galaxies into existence. This is the king of an unshakable kingdom. You know, we're living in a time that the anxiety level around the world is at an all-time high. But what's the thing? What's the foundation that will not be shaken? The scripture says in Hebrews, that which will be shaken or can be shaken will be shaken. What's the thing that does not move? The thing that's going to last. It is His unshakable kingdom. And when you follow that, you are a part of something that's secure, lasting, eternal, and will never, ever be shaken. I'm going to say some things here that you're going to think that's pretty self-promoting. Uh, but I'm not really trying to do that. I'm trying to make a point. 
I stood at the side of the bed of Curtis West. Curtis was a former member of our youth group when we were in North Mesquite, Texas. And I worked for Curtis for a year. And during that year that we became reconnected, okay, that year we became reconnected, I was able to lead Curtis back to the Lord. I became the general manager of his company. I knew nothing of his business. He just needed somebody to trust. Led him back to the Lord. Curtis was big. He was obese, morbidly obese. And he decided to have a gastrointestinal type surgery. And I stood beside his bed that day. I prayed with him, Lord be with him, all those things. And he shook my hand and he reached up to hug me. He said, Scott, he said, and I wasn't working for him anymore. I accepted the position as senior associate pastor of church. He said, Scott, I don't know what I would have done without you. I told him that. But I went back to my office and sat down. About 10 minutes later, I get a call from his mom. She said, Curtis is dying. A couple years later, my dad comes back into my life. I start taking care of him, taking him to his doctor's appointments, doing all those kind of things, whatnot. Finally, after we had moved up here and shore him up here to the nursing home down the street here on 81st or Houston, whatever you want to call it, 4th Street or something like that, on the last day of his life, I went to his bedside. A tear came out of his eye, Thanksgiving Day. He said, Scott, I don't know what I would have done without you. Your pastor, your former pastor, Pastor Brogdon, after he had coded his wife on Thursday in November up here at San Francis Hospital, Dana and I were the last people beside his bed before he was going to get on the airplane and they were going to fly him for a heart transplant, not a heart transplant, but they were going to put an artificial heart in him. Tears filled in his eyes, and he said, Scott, I don't know what I would have done without you. I began to kind of understand that period of time and that little thing, what my calling was. It was to run the last few miles with a few people. sure that they were solidly on track to attain the goal. Pastor Brogdon and I were going to call them. The other two weren't. To run beside them. Hold their hands up when necessary. To encourage them. Let's go. Let's go. Let's keep running. Let's keep trying to get to the prize. What are you saying? Curtis, my dad, and Pastor Brogdon, they're all in heaven. Seeing we are surrounded by this great cloud 
of witnesses. Are you catching where I'm going? You have some people in that great crowd of witnesses that have gone on before you. And you know what? If I break my neck, will you cheer me on to his life? We're surrounded by this great crowd of witnesses, and you have people that are in that crowd. They've gone on before you. I could pull them out. You, Arlene, that's the daughter of Dick Swan. On and on. Connie, your grandpa. Grandpa Ryan. They're in that great crowd of witnesses. Husbands, wives, children, friends. And they're looking down in the middle of the room that you're running this race with. And you're running as hard as you can. Sometimes you're discouraged. Sometimes you feel like giving up. Sometimes you say, what's the use? And you can maybe hear their voice in the distance if you listen real carefully. And they're saying, Darla, Darla, I know you're down. I know you're tired. I know it's difficult. But I made it and so can you. Run. Get your eyes fixed on Jesus. You're not running this life alone, this race alone. Every one of us can hear a voice out there somewhere that's cheering us on. And if it's not voices that are around us right now, be assured that we are living with this unshakable kingdom. We've joined. We've gotten into this race. And we have all kinds of encouragers. And guess what? They all know that you're going to make it. You're going to make it. You may have to endure to the end. It may take greater resolution than you ever dreamed, but you're going to make it. Would you stand? Fix your eyes on Jesus. We're part of an unshakable kingdom. More solid than you can imagine. And I just want you to be encouraged today. If you don't need encouragement, I assure you, like I said last week, the only type of people that need encouragement are those who are grieving. You need to be a, a pat on the back. You need to be that person that says, hey, good job. You're going to make it. It's tough, but it's going to be okay. Would you pray together as Darla plays? Let's just look to the Lord. If you want to lift up hand, your hands, that's fine. If you'd like to kneel, that's fine. If you'd like to run or walk or whatever you want to do, that's fine. But we just need to look to the king of that unshakable kingdom, and we just need to thank him that he blazed the trail for us, that he was the pioneer, and he gave us a goal as a field. Father, we love you. We want to give you praise. We want to give you glory because you are worthy. There is no name in heaven and earth that is above your name. And we praise you. Oh, Lamb of God. Yes, Lord, we get discouraged. We get down. 
but we can hear your voice. We can hear those voices of our past speaking into our ears and cheering us on. Lamb of God, we can run this race. We may not be especially fast. We may not be especially skilled, but we're going to make it. Oh, Lamb of God, let us know that when we're down, when we have the tears of sorrow and sadness, that you're the one who lifts up our hands. Oh, Lamb of God, begins to point our face to the mountaintop. Father, we honor you, and we give you all of the glory and all of the praise. And when we go this week, Lord, I pray that we'll hear this resounding in our ears, that there is a crowd cheering us on. We love you, and we give you all the honor and all of the praise. And before you raise your heads, keep your heads bowed, because I want to have a specific prayer. Are there those of you here today that maybe you've experienced war discouragement in your life recently? You know, it's a drudge we get up sometimes, you know. It's really hard to focus on the goal. It's hard to see that finish line sometimes. I'm not going to reveal to anybody who you are, but I just want you to lift your hand because I want to know who to pray for this week, okay? I pray for all of you, but I want to know who I need to pray for especially this week. If that's you on the count of three, I just want you to slip your hand up and put it right back down. We're going to have a special prayer for you, all right? Are you ready? If I'm speaking to you, one, two, and three. People lifting their hands already. Anybody else? Anybody else? 